turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, page 3 in your church Bibles. I'm going to read from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Let us hear the word of God. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the waters teemed and that moves about in it according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said... Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, please have that passage open in front of you, Genesis chapter 1. What is a human being? What is a human being? I suppose there are several ways you could go about answering that question. You could adopt, for example, a purely scientific approach, in which case you would discover that the average person, whoever he or she may be, contains just under 38 litres of water, enough to take a bath in. Enough fat, and this will vary from person to person, to make seven bars of soap. Phosphorus for over 2,000 matches, carbon for 7,000 pencils and enough sugar to sweeten seven cups of tea. In my case, a bit more because I quite like sweet things. And enough iron to make a medium-sized nail. In addition to this, our bodies contain trace quantities of fluorine, silicon, manganese, zinc, copper, aluminium, and even arsenic. No matter how attractive or intelligent you might think yourself to be, physically... Your body is not really worth very much. Sorry about that. But looking on the bright side, your most valuable asset is your skin. I won't go into details about how one Japanese company got this information, but once you factor in things like height and weight and breast size, 
Cut and dried, the average person is the proud owner of between 14 to 18 square feet of skin. Based on the selling price of cowhide, the value of the average person skin is about, wait for it, £2.66. Some of us might want to sell up early before we get old and wrinkly. If we want the best price, just a suggestion. And now whether you find these facts fascinating or horrifying, they do alert us, don't they, uh, to the reality that if we want a serious answer to the question, who am I, or what is my true value, we are going to have to go beyond science, or simply the mere chemical composition of things. Uh, Atheist philosopher Peter Singer argues that the boundary between uh, human and animal life is arbitrary, completely arbitrary. He popularized the term speciesism. Uh, Not unlike racism or sexism, speciesism is a prejudice that results in the exploitation of other species for the benefit of human beings like you and I. Singer believes that all creatures that can feel pleasure or pain should be treated equally. Discrimination between species, even to benefit humans, is therefore unacceptable. But is Peter Singer right? Are radical animal rights activists right? Well, the opening chapter of the Bible, the book of Genesis, suggests that human beings are unique amongst all God's creatures. That is what I think God is saying to us in his word from Genesis chapter 1 here this afternoon. And so that's the first thing. You and I are unique amongst all God's creatures. But let's be clear. Genesis celebrates other living creatures. God made the sea and the land swarm with living creatures. Chapter 1, verses 20 to 25. According to verse 22, he blessed them and caused them to multiply. Twice we are told it was good with respect to those creatures he created. You see that in verse 21 and then again in verse 25. So respect for our environment and the creatures in it is not only right, it is also Christian. Our God is the God of creation and not just the God of salvation. One of the leaders here at Gracious Broccoli works in sustainability. Well, environmental sustainability is a good and noble area of work for Christians to be involved in. And now, throughout Genesis chapter 1, the biblical account of creation is intentionally formulaic. God speaks and things happen. Stuff happens. I could use another S word, but that would be impolite. He creates by issuing instructions. Far from being thrown together, things are carefully crafted and meticulously ordered. Whether he is forming land, sea, or sky, or filling them with living creatures, it's as if God, or Elohim, has a vast army of despicable me-like minions rushing around the place, executing his will. Only, there aren't any minions anywhere 
on the pages of Genesis chapter 1 because his word is so powerful but it affects the very things it pronounces. God's word produces what it utters. Unlike President Trump, God does not sign an executive order and then stand back while the little people swing into action. No, he literally says it and it is so. Ten times we read the refrain, and God said. And six times we read, and it was so. In Genesis chapter 1. So when it comes to the creation of human beings, we expect to read something like, let the ground produce people. But instead, we read this in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. The pattern of verses 1 to 25 is broken, it's changed. And the deep significance of what is happening here is further underlined in a number of different ways. At first, it is presented as the final act of God's creative activity. Day six appears to reach its climax with the creation of human beings. Previously, we have noted that it's as if everything was created with us in mind. Well, as the jewel in the crown is put in place, as it were, God's creative work was done, finished, complete, at the end of day six. Second, more column space is given over to our creation, verses 26 to 30, than to the creation of our great oceans, our huge land masses, and all the many creatures, other creatures that fill them. Notice by comparison that the vast numbers of stars and planets in our entire, in, in our universe, outside of our solar system, barely get one third of a mention in verse 16. The writer simply says, oh, by the way, he also made the stars. In other words, the writer clearly wants us to know that what is happening in verses 26 to 30 is extremely important. Third, the word create, which has been used very sparingly in this chapter up to now, we saw it in verse 1 and then again in verse 21, is used three times in one verse. Look with me at verse 27. So God created, uh, the Hebrew word there is bara, just to keep you awake. Say with me, bara. One, two, three. Bara. There. Now you know just as much Hebrew as I know. <laughs> Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Remember, uh, this word translated create here is a unique word that is never used of an action done by a mere man or woman. And we find it only at emphatic points in this chapter. Verse 1, verse 21, and verse 27. It speaks of God's, Elohim's, unique activity. Fourth, we have that break in the pattern of the chapter I mentioned earlier. Now, a great deal of ink has been spilled over what the word us refers to in verse 26. 
Conservative scholars, for the most part, agree that it is God addressing himself. Uh, What we have here is not a leftover relic of a polytheistic and many-god view of the world, but rather the first hint in the Bible of the Trinity. It may interest you to know that the word for God throughout chapter 1 of Genesis, the word Elohim, which appears in literally every verse, this is the plural form of the word for God in the ancient world. Elohim can deliberate within himself because he has a spirit who is both one with him and distinct from him at the same time. Put simply, the one and only Christian God of the Bible is us and not me. There is a difference between being and personality. For example, in this room there is one type of being. You are all, I hope, human beings. Yet we have, I don't know how many people we've got in this room, 40, 50, maybe more. We've got 50 or so different personalities. See, being is what you are, whereas personality is who you are. Well, the Christian God of the Bible is one being with three personalities. In Genesis chapter 11, as he goes down to see what is happening at the Tower of Babel, we read him saying to himself, let us go down and confuse their languages. In looking for someone to be his prophetic voice, Isaiah heard the Lord, the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So this idea of the plurality of persons in the one God is not unique to Genesis chapter 1. Of course, it reaches its climax as God reveals himself supremely in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. When the God-man Jesus is baptized in Mark chapter 1, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are there, present. But the point to hold on to, however, in all this, in chapter 1 verse 26 of Genesis, in the words of one writer, is this. It is as if God's direct personal involvement in our creation is specially important because we are specially important. That's the point I think the writer wants us to see. Let me say that again. It's as if God's direct personal involvement in our creation, Adam and Eve, is specially important because you and I, we, humanity, is specially important. As God approaches the most excellent of his works, instead of simply commanding that it be so, he instead enters into a divine consultation with himself. Put differently, what is about to come off his production line is unlike anything that has come before. We're about to see something unique in the whole of God's creation. The text is trying to draw our attention to the great dignity or value Of your nature as a human being as you sit here this afternoon. You are incredibly special as you sit here this afternoon listening to me. Hence, you get top billing and are the climax of day six of the whole creation event in chapter one. Let me put it another way. No matter what your past, 
no matter how much of a mess you think you've made of your life, no matter your imperfections or your poor body image, your lack of academic achievements, your family background, your morality or lack thereof, whether you are married or single, whether you are sporty, musical or none of the above, whether good looking like me or not so good looking like, um, no, (laughs) we won't go there. Whether you're overweight, disabled, riddled with disease or not, you matter to God in a way that a giraffe, a chimpanzee, a dolphin, or a daddy long leg does not and could not. You are unique amongst all God's creatures. I want you to know that here this afternoon. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, and perhaps especially because it still applies even if you're not a Christian here this afternoon. That's the first thing to note this afternoon from this passage. You and I are unique amongst all God's creatures. Uh, The fact that you and I are special and matter uniquely to God is underlined for us even further in verse 26. Look at it with me. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Human beings like those of us here today. Are unique amongst all God's creatures. And here is why. The second thing to note. Is that you are created in God's image. You and I are created in God's image. Humanity. And land animals. Have much in common. Both humans and animals are made on day six. Both are blessed by God and given the command to multiply. Given these similarities, perhaps it should not be a surprise that we closely resemble animals, the animals around us, in several different ways. As pointed out by biologists, geneticists, and anthropologists. For example, the hand of a chimpanzee is uncannily like my own hand. In my late teens, I had a dog, and he would sleep at the end of my bed at night, and we would go running together, and I was very fond of him. His name was Wixie. But Genesis is clear that you and I are not simply animals. God has set us apart from the rest of the created order and given us a position of unique dignity by creating us in his own image. Uh, Theologians have spent uh, centuries discussing exactly what it means to be created in God's image. Essentially, it boils down uh, to two key things. First, as God's image bearers, we reflect God's personality. And second, we relate to God personally. Let's briefly look at these uh, two in turn. So first... As image bearers, you and I reflect God's personality. Notice in verse 26 that the word image and likeness seem to mean pretty much the same thing. So over the page or two in Genesis chapter 5 verse 3, Adam had a son in his own image and likeness. His name was Seth. Seth, if you like, was a chip off the old block, as it were. No doubt he looked a bit like his father, like father, like son. But, of course, the writer cannot simply be referring to physical resemblance because, of course, God is spirit, we're told in the Bible. God has no body as such. So some have argued that we reflect God's image because we are rational, that is, capable of reflective thought. We are 
moral, responsible for the choices we make. We are social, able to both give and to receive love. We are creative. So like our creator, we like to make things like art or to build a bridge. And lastly, we are spiritual, able to worship. And listen to how one writer uh, put this. Most eight-year-olds can write an understandable letter to their grandparents describing a trip to the zoo. Or can move to a foreign country and learn any other language in the world. And we think it entirely normal. But no animal will ever write such a letter to its grandparents or give the past, present, and future of even one French verb or read a detective story and understand it or understand the meaning of even one verse from the Bible. Human children do all these things quite readily and in so doing they show themselves so far superior to the whole animal kingdom that we wonder why people have sometimes thought that we are merely another kind of animal. Think about that, those of us who are parents. How incredible our kids are. Now, as, as true and as fascinating as all that is, uh, we, do, we need to be careful at this point because uh, some of these attributes are also reflected in the animal kingdom. For example, a gorilla named Coco was trained by scientists to communicate in sign language using over 1,000 words. She was being taught the alphabet such that she could read some printed words, including her own name. And she scored 85 in the Stanford Binet Intelligence Test. So it's worth listening to Genesis at this point. If only to let it truly speak, because the writer points us in a different direction. Look again with me at verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We've already uh, seen previously in this chapter, that God is the ruler of the universe. We sang about it earlier on. Well, being created in his image seems to be closely connected with the idea of ruling or subduing. Verse 26 and verse 28. As human beings, we have been created to share in the rule of God. Adam was God's first vice-regent, and Eve was given to help him in this highly exalted and noble task. They were to be king and queen of all they could survey, and they were to reflect and extend the rule of God across the whole earth, starting in the Garden of Eden. Adam, however, could not do this alone. So Eve would rule alongside him by bringing other human beings into the world to help rule alongside her and her husband, Adam. One of the tragic ironies of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is that the reason God forbids us from making images of him is because he's already created an image of himself here on earth. Us! You and me. And as you and I take up our rightful 
placed as rulers over his creation, we reflect something of his image to those around us. Wow! All of us here today, whatever your gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and physical or mental capacity, all of us have great dignity and worth because we have been created in God's image as creation rulers in our little corner of the globe. As others look at you, they should see something of God's image reflected in you. This is why whether you are a stay-at-home mother, a librarian, a nurse, doctor, teacher, cleaner, refuge collector, pensioner, and so on and so on. In the words of the great civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King, do your job so well that nobody could do it better. Do it so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to say, here lived a man or woman who did his or her job as if God Almighty had called him or her at this particular moment in history to do it. And why? Because as image bearers, we are to reflect the rule of God Almighty himself. If that does not put a spring in your step, I'm tempted to believe that nothing will. Second, as image bearers, you and I reflect God's personality. But second, as image bearers, you and I relate to God personally. As image bearers, you and I relate to God personally. What I mean is, as image bearers, we relate to God on a personal level like no other creature on the face of this planet. Notice the similarity between verse 22 and verse 28. Verse 22, God blessed the birds and the sea creatures and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Look at verse 28. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Both are to be fruitful and fill the earth, yes. But did you spot the all-important difference? It's as if the birds and the sea creatures have no choice in the matter. Living off their instincts, they must simply do what they are told, according to verse 22. But in verses 28 and 29, Adam and Eve are addressed personally and individually. Look at verse 28. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said to them, Adam and Eve. Verse 29, I give you, Adam and Eve. They will be yours, Adam and Eve, for food. It's as if they have a choice and therefore a responsibility to obey God personally, individually. Both Adam and Eve. Of course, if God made, if, if being made in God's image means rule, then with that rule will come moral responsibility. If God is the ultimate ruler and Adam and Eve and their offspring are his vice regents, then in a very real sense, we have, we are his representatives on earth and with very real choices to make and responsibilities to fulfill. This becomes even more apparent as we note a further difference. Humans are given plant-yielding seeds, verse 29, and animals are not. The point, I think, is not that humans eat fruits and vegetables while animals do not, but rather that humans will be involved in agriculture 
Animals forage and hunt instinctively, while humans consciously and intentionally plough the fields and scatter, as it were. Hence, we can bring food and give it to a food bank. See, farming is a further reflection of the fact that we humans control our environment in a way quite unlike other creatures on this planet. Uh, go up on a tall building, for example, the Shard, and look out over... Like, I've not done this, but some of you may have done this. Go up on the top of the Shard, which you can part with £25 or whatever it costs, and then look out over London. Every building, whether ancient or modern, has been put in its place by us. Humans. Unlike Coco, the gorilla, we build cities, irrigate land, mine for metals, and have even put objects and people into space. If environmentalists are to be believed, we are even altering the entire global ecosystem of our planet. Such is our impact. Whatever you believe about climate change, it cannot be denied that we divert rivers, change entire landscapes, write symphonies, uh, develop IT systems, as well as genetically modified crops. Occasionally, you hear scientists say, uh, people say, say of scientists, they're playing God when it comes to things like cloning, fertility treatment, and stem cell research. In a sense, such statements are not far off the mark. God has given us an amazing degree of ruling authority, and with it, a great deal of personal and moral responsibility. He will hold each one of us personally and morally accountable. Since our uniqueness as human beings means we are created in his divine image to rule over his creation personally and individually as we relate to him and to one another. Let me close with one or two lines of application. Last July, my family and I went to a, to a theatre to listen to the stories of several women around the theme of beauty. It was produced by our, one of our very own students uh, from Goldsmith, Benedict Leon. While telling uh, her story, one of the women insisted that as people, we matter. Genesis endorses this view. As human beings, you all matter. We all matter. Uh, two items appeared uh, side by side in a museum. One was the skeleton of a Roman slave whose body had been left at the bottom of a well. In life, he had no freedom and no rights, and in death, he had been disposed of like a piece of rubbish. He would put down the well. The other exhibit was a Roman altar dedicated to the divine Emperor Augustus. The contrast between these two people could not be greater. Both represent a false understanding of who we are as human beings. We're not rubbish. We're not divine. A few days ago, I heard a woman on the radio making the point that what an elderly person has for breakfast is just as important as what a child has for breakfast. I don't remember the context of the discussion, uh, but when you understand Genesis 1 verses 26 to the end of a chapter, you realise she is right. Yet, if we are honest, I think often we don't think like that. Let me give you perhaps a more pertinent example. You might be tempted to think that leading a fellowship group 
when only four people turn up is less worth your while than if eight turned up. But the thing is, what are you saying about the four that have turned up? Are they somehow less worthy image bearers because only four of them turned up? James, in his New Testament letter, warned us against discriminating and becoming judges with evil thoughts with regard to one another. Whether there are many or few, whether someone is poor and working class, wealthy and middle class, well-educated or poorly educated, able to make a positive contribution or not, for whatever reason, whether your children's church class has six children in it or two children in it, every person you lock eyes with is a person created in God's image. This means they have intrinsic dignity, value and worth regardless and should be treated as such. Uh, James also warns us of the, following, of the following. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Have to be careful, don't we? The way we use our tongues, the way we talk about one another. Having lost one-fifth of our congregation to a Catholic church plant, perhaps some of us need, uh, perhaps we need to think differently as we go forward as a church, but I think the message today might be one we all need to hear afresh, including myself. Those who are left are just as valuable as those who have gone. The book of Genesis tells us that we are each the unique creation of God Almighty himself. You are uniquely special. This is not arrogance or speciesism, but the clear teaching of God's word. As God's unique, God's unique image bearers, you and I were created to share in his rule over his creation and are personally accountable to him like none of these other creatures. And furthermore, the book of Genesis takes us right to the front line of many of the political and ethical battles that are raging in our culture today. Abortion, euthanasia, the NHS, care of the elderly, stem cell research, and so on and so on. How we address these issues, how we understand things like human rights, hinges on what we think it means to be human. On questions like, who am I? And what is my value? What is my worth? Whatever your answer to these questions, the Bible makes it clear that God so loved the world, he so valued you and me, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Life with him forever. And even though this creation seems outside of our control, having risen from the dead, the writer to the letter of the Hebrews, quoting Psalm 8 that we had read earlier on, reminds us that now crowned with glory and honour, all things, including this creation, are under his, that is Jesus' control. So trust him. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes and have a moment for reflection.